All right, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, we're going to be considering today verses 11 to 13. You may not have uh, moved very far from home in your lifetime, but it's still possible that at one time or another you have experienced what is called culture shock. It could come, say, after you have moved from one workplace that you have been for a long time to another job site, new workplace, uh, job you've, you know, not just a, a transfer in a company, but to a brand new company, and experienced there a different way of working and a different mindset and a different philosophy and experienced with those new things culture shock. Culture shock can happen when you graduate from a small rural high school and go on to a big college or leave home and join the military. And of course, when you move from one country to another, you may also experience culture shock. It's a normal experience. In changing countries, everything from food to accents to the climate to the whole value system may be completely different from what you're used to. And when the way of life that you enter into is unexpectedly different from what you know, you experience culture shock. I I didn't really have a lot of culture shock when we moved from Ontario, where we just, we were there for um, seven months or so at the end of 2004 down to Louisiana, because I had already spent... um, four years at a church in Alabama while I was going to school in Pensacola, Florida. And so I was already very familiar with um, y'all and sweet tea, southern hospitality and southern cooking. Maybe not as much the the sportsman uh, obsession, but uh, for the most part, there wasn't a whole lot of culture shock. Now, funny thing... um, when I first came down here, George asked me if I said, use guys. And I thought, use guys. I have never heard anybody say use or use guys in my life. Well, as we've made some visits up to the place that we're moving to, I've heard it a lot. And that's actually my my first taste of culture shock to where we're going. I thought, man, this is going to take a lot for me to get used to because this y'all thing is deep in me now. (laughs) Yeah, well, it has to be a certain region of the north, I guess. Now, I'm I'm really not talking this morning. I know it fits with our our family's upcoming move. But when I'm talking about culture shock, that's not my point. One day called the day of the Lord, when Jesus Christ returns and we enter into his kingdom, one thing that we do not want to experience is culture shock. We don't want to have culture shock on that day. As though the value system there is foreign to us. As though the way of life in the kingdom is strange to us, as though the loves of the heavenly country are foreign to us. Now, the only tried and true way to avoid culture shock is to study a culture, value it, 
and embrace it. And of course, even when you're changing countries, there's only so much you can do to put off culture shock. There's only so much of that life that you can begin to experience ahead of time. Now, we haven't yet entered Jesus Christ's kingdom. We've been transferred there. We have our citizenship there. But we haven't yet entered there. The present form of this world is passing away. And the kingdom of God is our true home and our sure future. And when you were born again, and when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and the life of the kingdom came into you. And we are to grow in the godliness of that kingdom life, so that when we finally do enter the kingdom, not only spiritually, but physically, and with all of our faculties, and our, we're there immediately in our being, and we're beholding the face of Jesus Christ. And we are with all the kingdom citizens from all the ages. It's not to be culture shock, because we have already grown in the life of the kingdom. But I do fear that there is something amiss in the church today. Do we truly long for Christ's return? Is that the great hope of our lives? It is impossible. That's impossible if we are enamored with this present age. If we are obsessed with this world. It's impossible to long for Jesus' return. If we're worshiping at the altar of politics and or power, and or pleasures, and or possessions, it's impossible to long for the return of Christ. And I really believe that we like life as it is far more than is healthy for us. Why do we need Jesus Christ to come if the American dream can fix all that ails us? There's something that I want you to take to heart. There's something that I I want you to be convinced of. That is, living in a most prosperous age, in a most prosperous country, is most dangerous to our souls. Now, there's nothing we can do about it. We are in it, whether we like it or not, and we do like it, and we shouldn't take it for granted. We should thank God for it. But living in a most prosperous age, in a most prosperous country, is yet perilous to our hearts and minds. C.S. Lewis said that prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. We love our freedom but we aren't really free if we are slaves to this present age. We say all the time, we're not of this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. That's coming from John 17 in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not of this world. But you know what that translates to? You are not of America. You are in it, and you love it. It is right for you to serve it, And even to, if the call came, 
Give your life for its continued freedoms and so on. But you're not of this place. You are not of this country. Canada is going to be dissolved. America is going to be dissolved. We are not of this world. I believe that we need to turn around again. And we need to fix our eyes on heaven again. Fix our hopes on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again. And I pray that that's what the word of God does for you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help and uh, get into verse 11. Our Father, it is the promise of your word that you will give to us your Holy Spirit when we ask. We know we have your Spirit within us as the born-again children of God. But we pray for that fullness of the Holy Spirit as we come into the Word together, our eyes focused on Jesus, so that we would really take to heart and our lives would be transformed by your truth. It is your promise that if you have already given to us the greatest gift, your Son, your one and only Son, then truly, freely, you will give us all things that we need. And so we're praying, Father, that you would be with us, working in us in irrepressible ways, in ways that we can't stifle and keep down. Take us over. Do great work in us today. Make us yours. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake, Father. Amen. Verse 11 again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If this world is going to die, and if you are going to die with it, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That is, live it up while you have today, because today is all you have. But this life isn't the end of you. It's not the end of anyone. Even after this world and everything in it is dissolved, and you know the heavenly bodies are burned up and so on, our lives will go on. We will live on either in suffering, separated from the Lord Jesus Christ, or with Christ in the joy of the fullness of His glory. It's one or the other. There's no third place. There's no purgatory. Nothing like that. We are with Christ or separated from Him under His wrath. And so if this world is going to perish, and yet you are going to live on, then what sort of person ought you to be in this present world? While you wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What kind of person ought you to be? Notice something interesting here. Very often you know that the Bible, in cases like this, in in contexts like this, will spell out exactly what kind of person you should be. But that's not what Peter is doing here. He's not spelling it out exactly, even as he's directing our thoughts to holiness and godliness. He's not spelling it out. What's he doing? He's asking. 
He's prodding. Do you know what the Lord wants you to do with this? He wants you to think it through for yourself. What kind of person ought I to be if this present world is going to pass away? In a life of holiness and godliness, what kind of person ought I to be? So let me ask some follow-up questions. Let your thoughts travel down that narrow road that leads to life. What does the narrow way life look like? Where does that life find its joy? If this present world is passing away, where will you find your joy? If the present world is passing away, where are you going to find your peace? What are your plans for the next decade? If the Lord tarries the next decade and he gives you that length of time, what are your plans? Are your plans for the next decade going to be shaped by the priorities of this passing age, this passing world? Or will your plans for the next decade be shaped by the kingdom that's coming and that is eternal? What are you going to do with your money? What will direct your money? The present passing age or the future one that's coming and eternal? And at the end of all things, at the end of all of history, will the loves of your life burn up with the world? Or do the loves of your life belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken? Let's look at what Peter says next. What sort of life ought you to live in holiness and godliness? He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, look at those two things that Peter says we ought to be doing. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And I know that the second thing that Peter says we ought to be doing is strange, if you think about it. Hastening the day of God. And we'll get to that in a moment, but I want to address that first one first. Because though the second one sounds strange, like how does this square with other things that the Bible says? I don't want it to be strange at all to us to be waiting for Christ's kingdom, for that to be our passion for the kingdom of God to be the thing that we are seeking above all else, as Jesus taught us to. I don't want it to be that we looked for the kingdom and we lived for the kingdom so little today that if we entered into it tomorrow, it would be a shock to our system, to our own cultural system, to our own way of life. Rather, when we cross the border from this age into the coming eternal age, from the country of men into that heavenly country, we would actually say, this is what I have been waiting for my entire life. This is where I belong. I didn't fit in there. This is where I fit in. This is my true home. And finally... At last I have it. Is the day of God what you are waiting for? Really? Really waiting for? 
I honestly feel like I am waiting for the uncertain momentary things of this time, often more than I am waiting on the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison that is promised to us. And a part of me will say, well, that's normal. You know, that's to be expected. We count down the days until, you know, whatever happens that's, you know, the next big and exciting thing. But I don't want that to be the norm of my heart. I want my heart, I want your heart to belong completely to our king and his kingdom. Church family, friends, we walk by faith and not by sight. And by that faith, we have the assurance of the things that are hoped for, and we have the conviction of the things that aren't seen. We are looking not to the things that are seen, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, but to the things that are unseen. Just as we believe, not by sight, but by faith, that Jesus Christ came and saved us, So we believe, not by sight, but by faith, that he is coming again to save us. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we do not see him now, we believe in him. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And if you die in this age before Jesus Christ comes again, not having received the things promised, then live your life in such a way that you see them and you greet them from afar, as it says in Hebrews. And just as we sung in that song a moment ago, sweet by and by, we see this from afar and we see it by faith. And by seeing these things from afar, we confess that we are strangers and exiles on this earth. I love this home that I have here. I love the home that I have come from. I know that you love your home. God has put that into us. But we are seeking a true homeland that is not here. We're seeking the better country, the heavenly one. We are looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Peter writes, we are waiting for the day of God. Are you really? With all uh, the responsibilities of this world, with all the pleasures afforded to you in this world, all of the good gifts and cool stuff and on and on and on we could go, are you really waiting on the day of God? Don't let this passing age steal your hope away from Jesus and transfer it to things that are going to be dissolved. We are waiting for, he says, and hastening the coming of the day of God. So that is, by a holy and godly life, we are hastening the coming of that day. Now, that should sound strange to you. From all that we know about God his character, his perfections, it should sound odd because we could say, isn't the day already appointed? Yes, it is. Like everything else, the day is appointed. So it can't be changed then. 
No, it can't be changed. But it can be hastened. Yes, it can be hastened. So how? Well, our goal is not to wrap our minds around this completely and solve it like some mathematical formula. But we want to grow in our understanding. So hopefully we can shed some light on this. What it means to hasten the day of God and how we do it. When it comes to days, the Bible says that every single one of your days is numbered already. In fact, all of your days were numbered before you had lived a single one of them. Psalm 139, verse 16. And before there was a single day period, God had already fixed that day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's Acts chapter 17, verse 31. So all of the days, period, are fixed already. And yet, we may hasten that day. Well, how? Let me give you two things. First of all, by praying for the kingdom to come. And then second, by proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. Let's talk about the first thing, by prayer. If we think that since God has already fixed the day, that our prayers concerning that day are useless, then we are, we're falling into a, a very common rut way of thinking. Um, if we, if we think that our prayers are useless to hasten that day, we're thinking, this is what we're doing. We're thinking only of the fixed end and not the appointed ways to get there. So God appointed the end, the day of the Lord, and he has already ordained the means to get there. And both of them, the end and the means, are according to the purpose of his will, already ordained in eternity. So think of it like this. Just as God numbered our days before we had lived a single one of them, so God laid the road of history with every straightaway on that road and every switchback on that road. He laid the road by the prayers of his people before there was a single one of them. That is, before there was a single prayer. He ordained and he fixed the end, the day of the Lord, and this is one of the means to get there It is by the prayers of his people. Do you get that? I, I think it, maybe I should say it again, and this is just as much for my own sake as, as it is for yours. Just as God numbered our days before there was a one of them, so God laid the road of history completely with every straightaway and every switchback on the road by the prayers of his people before there was one of them. And I'm not saying he only laid down the road by our prayers, but that's one way, one key essential way in which he laid down the road. So we don't change the coming of the day from when it will be, but we hasten it from what it would be if we did not pray. So basically, just take God at his word and pray for the coming of the kingdom, because that's one way in which it is hastened. And yet it's not the only way. A second way, after we pray for the kingdom, we also proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Just like Jesus, 
who told the people, he said, repent in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we go out and we tell the good news of the kingdom. We tell people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. We tell them that the kingdom is coming and that the king has already come once. He has come into the far country. He has come for the prodigals. He has come and He has laid down His life for us so that we might be with Him in His kingdom forever. This is the good news we share. Repent, we say, and believe in the gospel. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. So how does that hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? Listen to this verse and listen carefully. This is Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus promised the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So the good news of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed to all nations. Which doesn't mean that you could just you know, real quick, stick your neck over the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea, you know, into North Korean land and say, Jesus is coming. You need to repent now. Salvation is only in Him. He died for your sin and rose again from the dead. He is the eternal Son of God. Thank you. Goodbye. And then come, you know, as though that would be the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. In the Bible, the, the thinking, the understanding of what the nations are is the people's. So the nations aren't only defined by, you know, geopolitical borders, like the 49th parallel between Canada and the United States. It's not only those land borders that define nations, but it's the peoples. And there may be many, many peoples within geopolitical borders. And, and not all the peoples have heard. Not all the peoples have heard. Many peoples have not yet heard. And that's why we are sending out and that's why we're supporting missionaries. And that's why we want to raise up missionaries within Alt's Chapel and all our Bible-believing churches to go to the peoples and tell them of Jesus Christ. Because once the nations have heard the good news of Christ and the last of the elect has come in, the day of the Lord will arrive and Jesus Christ will come. That's the promise. And we don't know when that's going to be. We just go about the work, praying just as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come. And spreading the good news of that kingdom to every ear. Finally, in verse 13, Peter writes, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not only expecting the destruction of the old, we are anticipating the creation of the new. The new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We have this notion that I think is very wrong-headed. Um... And I don't, I don't want to be irreverent in any way, but I think this notion that we have of our eternal home is somewhat cartoonish. We think of our eternal home as a city of shiny yellow metal sitting on a foundation of puffy white clouds. 
And there are all the people of God, some strange glow about them, halo, wings, strumming harps. And I've said this before, but every time I think of that, I think of this comic strip that I've seen, somebody sitting on a, a cloud with a white robe and he's strumming a harp and he is saying to himself, I really wish I had brought a magazine. Because that, that notion, cartoonish as it is and dull as it is, is not the reality that the Bible gives to us. The biblical truth is that heaven is far more earthy than we ever imagined. The new Jerusalem is coming down to the new earth. In Revelation, John sees and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And we sang about this a moment ago. Let's hear it from the word. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he was, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That city is a city of incomprehensible beauty. And it is a city, and it is a garden paradise, and it is a temple. Because it is the eternal dwelling place filled to the full with the fullness of the glory of God shining from the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. And every follower of Jesus Christ has a place there prepared for them. Thanks be to God. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? What are you trusting in? To be with God eternally. In the fullness of joy. The worship and the fellowship of the people of God from all the ages. What are you trusting in to have that place prepared for you in the holy city upon the new earth? Are you trusting in yourself? Anything to do with you? If someone would ask you, what are you trusting in to be right with God? What would you say? It's Christ Christ alone. It is not by your prayers that you are saved, not by baptism that you are saved, not by church attendance you are saved, not by being willing to give the shirt off your back to somebody in need that you are saved, not by the tears that you cry out to God you are saved. It is by grace alone. It is the free gift of God received through faith. Christianity is not the religion first of do, it is done. Jesus Christ has done all that is required of you. And when you put your faith in him, when you confess your sin and say, God, 
I call out to you, I cannot save myself. You must save and you alone or I'm lost. Then you are saved. It's by faith and faith alone, which has its natural expression in that prayer that cries out to him. But it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for what Christ alone has done. But something happens after this. All of those who are followers of Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit within them. We have not only been transferred into the kingdom, but we are being transformed by the life of the kingdom, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And the last thing that we want to have when we come up to the door of the kingdom is culture shock. As though we are encountering a different way of life with, with tastes and values and loves that are foreign to, foreign to us. So how can we avoid the culture shock of the kingdom? It's by that kingdom life growing in us now. By living Seeking the kingdom first and the righteousness of Christ first above all else. It's by wearing already the kingdom clothes, that is, the righteous deeds of the saints. So hear the word of God. Hear these, these scriptures from the Bible calling you to put all your hope in the return of Jesus and to live in righteous anticipation of His coming. First Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure.